0: Oh, good morning, Haynes Creek. How's everybody doing today? Good. Happy New Year. It's a brand new year, 2022. Hopefully it'll be different than 2020 and 2021. Let's pray for that. Um, But I am glad that you are here. My name is Travis and the pastor here. It's good to be worshiping with you this morning. Uh, If it's your first time, I just want to say a special welcome to you. We are so thrilled and excited that you are here worshiping with us. And and I would love a chance just to reach out and say thank you so much for your visits. If you can do me a huge favor before you head out today, stop by our table over here uh, where the coffee is. We've got a little card, love for you to fill out. Um, And again, that just gives me a chance to reach out and say thank you so much for your visit. So I'd really appreciate that opportunity. We got a free gift I'd love to put in your hands uh, as well before you leave. And if again, if you are new, you you catch us in the middle, towards the end, really. I kept saying middle. Now we're towards the end, y'all, of our series, The Church, The Gospel Made Visible. Uh, And this has been, uh, we're on week 12 now. This has been 12 weeks of us just laying a biblical foundation for who we want to be as a church, who we believe God has called us to be as a church as we are launching out in the new year. So exciting things as of today, we are an independent church. We are no longer a campus of First Baptist Covington. We are our own church, and we are going to celebrate that uh, at the end of this month on Sunday, January 30th. We're going to celebrate that as our official launch day of the church at Haynes Creek, uh, and we're also going to launch a brand new series that day going verse by verse through the book of Acts. So I hope you're ready for that. I hope you're praying for that. Uh, but today we're going to continue on in, in more of these topical kind of things, uh, seeing, okay, what, what what does the Lord say about the church? What does his word say about the church? Who we're supposed to be? What we're supposed to do? And what we've been saying is, is one of the really beautiful things about the church, and, and yet at the same time, one of the more difficult things about the church is that God, with the church, takes a bunch of people, a bunch of people that have put their faith in Jesus, been saved by his grace, and yet still struggle with their sin, He takes those sinful people and he puts us together in one body and is like, y'all build deep relationships with each other, be unified together, work together to accomplish my purposes. So he takes all of us people struggling with our sins still very much every single day, and he puts us in one group. And, and what, what happens when sinful people start to do exactly that? Sin, there's friction, there's difficulty in relationships, there can be some difficulty. Uh, but thankfully, the Lord speaks to what are, what we're supposed to do when people in the church Sin, especially what is it? What is the church supposed to do with people who refuse to repent of their sin? Uh, so that's what we're going to be addressing today. Uh, it's the topic of church discipline, which I know everybody is really excited for that topic. I know we the church loves preaching about that topic. It, it, it that's that's what you want to build a big crowd, you preach on church discipline, right? Like, I get it, I know, I'm excited too. This is a great, great day. Um, I, I know it's it's a it's not a fun topic to dig into, but it is important. It's a big deal. And the scriptures speak to what we're to do when sin gets in the church, how we're supposed to deal with it in a godly, biblical, God-honoring way. Uh, So to do that, we're going to hang out in two key passages today. Uh, We're going to start out in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 in your New Testament. Uh, And then we're also, once we spend some time talking about that, we're going to switch over to Matthew chapter 18 uh, and talk about some verses there as well. well. We'll start out in 1 Corinthians 5. Uh, and as I mentioned a couple weeks ago when we preached on communion, uh, 1 Corinthians, man, they, that is a wild church. I mean, this is the church. When we talk about communion, we talked about how they were getting drunk off of the communion wine. So this place is nuts, all right? This is a church kind of gone wild, and they're just uh, losing it at times, all right? So Paul writes this letter to correct them in a lot of their behavior. So this is a church that that Paul planted. We'll see that when we get into the book of Acts. We're going to see Paul spending time in Corinth planting this church, and then as the Lord led him to, he moves on to another city, starts to plant a new church, and then people come in and just the good theology, the good foundation that Paul laid, and now we have this mess of a church that is just messed up in, in so many ways. Uh, eventually, we'll preach through 1 Corinthians, and you'll just see, man, it is, there's some crazy people in the city of Corinth at this time. And this situation that we see in 1 Corinthians 5 uh, just shines a perfect spotlight on how messed up uh, some things were in this church. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I'm going to read all of it. It's 13 verses, so I'm going to read 1 through 13, and then we'll spend our time breaking it down and see what the Lord has for us. So it starts, out this way. Paul writes, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that even a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. among you. All right, so just let me kind of give some highlights. Amen. let me give some highlights as to what's going on, and then we'll we'll see what this has to do with the church and our practice of church discipline. So, so Paul finds out about this this awful sin being committed by a member of the church. What we what we're told here is a man is having some sort of inappropriate relationship with his stepmom, so or his 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 father's wife. So not his mom, but his father's wife. Currently at this time, having some sort of inappropriate relationship. Now, this is something that, that's condemned all throughout scriptures, and what Paul says is that it's even condemned by the pagan society of this time. And if you know anything about the Greco-Roman society at this time, they had no rules, all right? This was just sin upon sin upon sin. They didn't have any boundaries, they didn't have any rules, and even these people are like, man, you shouldn't do that. <laughs> that, there's a line, and you just crossed it. Like If, if pagans are saying, man, you, you crossed the line, that's a bad thing, all right? so Paul is certainly angry with this sinner and angry with the sin that's taking place, but he's angrier at the church. He's more frustrated at the Corinthian church because of their inaction in regards to this sin. And this is where we get to the main thing that Paul is addressing here. There, there, are, certain, there are certain sins, there are certain decisions, certain lifestyles made by Christians, made by members of a church that require other believers and the church to step in and take action. And this is what we refer to as church discipline. So this, in this passage, Paul is giving the Corinthian church some really important steps to take when a church has to step in and deal with the sin of one of, one of its members. So that's where we're going today. That's what we're going to talk about today. Again, church discipline, not a topic that you hear very often, uh, but it's an important one. It's a big one, especially as we're laying a foundation as a church. So so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to answer some questions. I'm going to answer what church discipline is, why we practice church discipline, how we practice church discipline, and when we should practice church discipline. So we're going to answer what, why, how, and when today. So let's jump right into it. Uh, The first question there, as you see, what is church discipline? What is church discipline? Well, church, this one at the base level is part of the, the discipleship. Process where we get that word from. It's part of the discipline process uh, of us as believers growing into more and more Christ-likeness, so becoming more and more uh, mature in our faith. This is this is part of that process. Uh, it's the same, your parent in here, uh, and you have a kid, or you've been a kid at any point in your life, so that would include everybody in here. Uh, you you have been disciplined by your parents, or you are disciplining your children. Now, now, why do we do that? Why do we do that? I mean, it seems like punishment from the kid's point of view, right? Like, my kids are all like, oh, oh, dad, you're so mean. Why are you doing this? Why am I in time out? Why are you talking to me about Like they get frustrated. Like they don't like it. Kids don't like it. But as parents, as parents on the other side of this, and look, I didn't like it either as a kid. So I'm, I'm with you. I hated it too. So I get it from their perspective. But now I understand it from my parents' perspective, having three kids. We, we do this out of love, right? It's part of a, a way to help them grow up into the world to, to be fully functioning adults out there that can hopefully, Lord willing, make wise decisions with their life, right? Like as a kid, we want to teach them, hey, here's what it looks like to make a good decision. And when you make a bad decision, here's the consequences that come as a result of that, right? Like, so we get that as a parent. It's the same thing in our relationship with Jesus. Hebrews 12 talks about how God is a loving father and as such disciplines his children, brings about consequences due to our sin and our bad decisions out of love for us, out of a way to help us grow and mature as believers, how to make us more and more like Jesus. So that's that. at the base level, that's what church discipline is. It's all part of our discipleship process. Thank you, <laughs> Thanks, Daryl. Uh, so this is what we see in verses one through two, where, where we see uh, that there are moments, there are moments in the life of a believer, in the life of a church, where sin becomes so serious and is left unrepented of that a church has to step in. A church has to step in and deal with it. So that's, that's the church discipline process. It's used in moments of serious and unrepentant sin. And we'll, I'll try to help define that as we get into this and what that means and what's included in that, what's not, all those kind of things. But, but church discipline is used in moments of serious and unrepentant sin. And again, this is what we see in verses one and two, that this, this person is committing such an extremely evil and serious sin that again, the, the immoral pagan outside world looks at this guy claiming to be a Christian and goes, dude, you should that, that's messed up. That's messed up. You crossed the line there. Don't do that. And again, if the pagan non-Christian world is saying that about us as believers, man, we know we've gone way too far. We know we've gone way too far. So this is what's going on. This is a big deal. This is a big deal. And this is why Paul is so worked up about this. And he's like, man, y'all gotta do something. This is a big deal. And we'll talk about why in a minute, but but this is a big deal. So this is what church discipline involves. It's these serious sins that are left unrepented of. Uh, there's an author, Jonathan Lehman, really love him. He, he's awesome. Wrote a book on church discipline. Again, not a you know glamorous topic. It's a thin book. If you wanna learn more, look it up. Jonathan Lehman on church discipline. He describes church discipline as this, as the act of removing an individual from membership and participation of the Lord's Supper due to unrepentant sin. And again, as we go through this, that'll make more sense. But just, again, that's how he describes it. It's the act of, of removing an individual from church membership and preventing them from participating in the Lord's Supper. Because here's what's happening in church discipline. Through church discipline, a church is making a judgment upon a person's sin, essentially saying because your sin is so serious and you're not walking in repentance of that sin, we as the church cannot in good conscience continue to affirm you as a believer. We can't do it. So that's what's going on here. And that's why you, you remove them from membership. That's why you bar them from the Lord's Supper. Because we, we as a church are saying, hey, because of your sin and your unwillingness to repent, now, I'm, I'm not sure you're a believer. I'm not sure you've put your faith in Jesus because this is not the way Christians live. This is not what the Lord has called us to. And if you're not walking in repentance, look, we all mess up. We all make mistakes. We all sin in many ways. But the Bible calls us to confess and repent of that. And when we say, nope, not doing that, not confessing, not repenting, well, this is 1 John 1. John tells us, well, if you're not going to repent of your sin, how can you claim to live for Jesus if you're not going to repent? How can you claim to Jesus if you're going to continue to willingly live in your sin? So that's where church discipline comes into play here. So again, a a definition of church discipline, uh, is it's a biblical process of the church necessary in moments of serious sin that seeks to restore an unrepentant sinner to repentance. Let me say that again. It's a biblical process of the church necessary in moments of serious sin that seeks to restore an unrepentant sinner to repentance. That's what church discipline is. It's a process that involves serious sin that seeks to restore someone to repentance. So that's what's going on here. So that's what church discipline is. Now let's deal with our second question. Why should we practice church discipline, right? Because, you know, that seems mean. Like, what? Well, you know, it seems mean, and, and we, again, and we'll talk about this in a minute, but we as as Americans, we love our individualism, right? Like, how are you going to come in and tell me what I'm supposed to do or what I can or can't do? No, I've got freedom. I've got liberty. You can't be talking to me like that. Like, we love that. Uh, and we, we love talking about God's love and that, that, you know, the Lord accepts everybody. Yes, he does. And we, we can all come to Jesus. Yes, that's true. So what, it's like, well, are we talking about God's love? Are we talking about sin? It's like, it's all this together. So why why should we practice church discipline? Because it seems mean. It seems harsh. It seems harsh but it's really important, it's a big deal. So I wanna give you three reasons why we should practice church discipline, and it all comes from 1 Corinthians chapter five. So the first reason, the first reason why we practice church discipline is to restore the sinner. Restore the sinner, restore the sinner. Look at verses three through five. So Paul already says, hey, there's this really bad sin, let him be removed from among you, and here's why. Verse three, for though absent in the body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, here's what you're to do. Verse five, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. All right, so what's going on here? What is is Paul doing here? He's telling the church to take action. And the action that he says is, is, next time you're gathered together as the people of God, next time you come together in worship as the congregation, here's what you're to do. Three things, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that he can be saved, so that his spirit can be saved. So let's let's talk about what this means. So the first thing he says is is remove him and deliver him over to Satan. So what's he talking about here? Is he, is it, is it We're going to kick this guy out, and he's never allowed back in. We're barring the entrance of the door. We're going to hire a Roman guard to stand at the front. If he ever gets near us, he's going to be arrested and thrown into prison or just kicked out of here. Is that, is that what he's saying? Is that what it means to be removed? No, I don't, I don't think it, that's what he means. And, and we'll talk about why later as we get into this. But I don't think that's what he's talking about. And that's why when we wrestle with this idea of church membership and trying to figure out what we're supposed to do, that's where we come to the conclusion, okay, he's being removed from some sort of official alignment with the church, uh, some sort of official relationship within the church. And we, in our culture today, refer to that as church membership. And it's just one of the easiest ways to talk about it. You're like, well, hey, show me the verse where you're supposed to be a member of the church. Can't show you that, but I can show you this, this idea of church membership, of committing yourself as a believer to a specific local congregation that is woven throughout the entire New Testament. And again, we're going to see that in the book of Acts. We're going to see that idea originally thought of, and we're going to see it throughout the book. So this is a big deal. This is an important thing. So when he says, we're going to remove you, that's what he's talking about, removing from church membership. You are no longer officially recognized as a member of this church, because how do you become a member? Well, you put your faith in Jesus. That's entrance into membership is faith in Jesus. And again, what we're saying here is because of your sin, we, we can't affirm that anymore. So that's what we're talking about. All right, so remove from church membership and deliver over to Satan. So what does that mean? There's a lot of debate on this. At the end of the day, I'll just be honest with you, we don't really know. But here's here's the best guess. By removing him from membership and delivering him over to Satan, what we're led to believe, the conclusion that we're led to draw from that, is there is some sort of protective covering that we, as believers, when we commit ourselves to a local church and membership, we get some sort of spiritual covering, some sort of added blessing. doesn't mean that we're, we're never going to struggle, we're never going to sin. That's not what it's talking about, no. It's some sort of strength gained from being connected to a local church. And again, we see that idea throughout the New Testament. We don't have time to get into that. But when we remove ourselves from that and we're delivered over to Satan, what Paul is saying here is that protection is gone. That protection is gone. And now that person is left defenseless to the onslaught and attacks of the enemy. Now again... That might be totally wrong. But here's what I do know. Being delivered over to Satan, whatever that means, sounds terrible. And is not something that we're all like, you know what I want to do today? I want to be delivered over to Satan. Can, can one of y'all deliver me over to Satan? That sounds like, really, that sounds like a lot of fun. That, that's what I want to spend my time today doing is being delivered over to Satan. So whatever it means, it's bad. It's not good. But what's the purpose of that? What, what is the reason of being delivered over to Satan? He says this, to, for the destruction of his flesh. The destruction of his flesh. Now here's what you gotta remember. When Paul writes of flesh and spirit, what is he talking about? When he refers to flesh, that, that's the sin that we still struggle with. And he, when he refers to flesh, that is the stuff that is within us that is in opposition to Jesus and his ways. So it goes against Jesus and his words. So when he says destruction of his flesh, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about his sin. And we see this language again throughout the New Testament. Paul says in Colossians chapter three that we are to put to death our sin. We're to kill it off, put it to death. So that's what Paul's saying here. He wants his sin, his flesh destroyed. He wants everything within this man to be so broken over his sin that he puts it to death, that he is done with this lifestyle, that he is walking away from this sin and he's coming back to Jesus. That's what Paul's talking about here. That's what Paul's talking about. For this man to be restored, his sin has to be destroyed. It has to be killed off. And what happens then? If he's delivered over to Satan, his flesh is destroyed, then his spirit is saved. And again, remember the, the contrast of flesh and spirit that Paul talks about. When we live in the flesh, that means we're living in our sin. When we live in the spirit, that means we're following Jesus in his ways. We're living in the righteousness that God has called us to. So when Paul says that our spirit may be saved, what he's talking about is is now we're brought back in line with Jesus and his ways. We've killed off our sin. We've put that to death. We've repented of that. We're no longer living in that way. Now we're going back to Jesus. Now we're living for Jesus again. That's what Paul says is trying to to help this person get to. It is to come back to Jesus, to come back to live in the life that he's supposed to live. And that's the end goal of church discipline. It is to restore the sinner, restore him to the life that he should be living in Christ. And so what Paul says here is, is through the experience of of having the, the onslaught of Satan's attacks, being removed from the protection of church membership, that this person will hopefully wake up to their sin, see and miss the blessings of being in church membership, of being affirmed by the church, and repent of their sins and come back to Jesus. That's why we do church discipline, it's to restore the sinner. See, church discipline in this way isn't retributive, it isn't punishment, it's restorative. It isn't retributive, it's restorative. It isn't payback, it isn't punishment, it isn't revenge upon that person. It is restoration. It is to bring about repentance, reconciliation, and restoration. And look, we, we see this on a minor scale at every time we're confronted with our sins, right? Which is not a fun experience, but we need it, and, and it happens. Uh, recently, uh, a few months ago... Uh, we were talking to our older kids, uh, Zayden's six and Livy is five. Uh, we were talking to them about, about emotions, right? Like trying to get them to uh, hopefully, you know, helpfully express their emotions when they're upset or they're sad or they're scared or whatever it is. We want them to be able to express that so we can, as good parents, help them through that, right? Uh, so we're kind of going around, how does everybody feel today? What's going on? What emotions are you feeling? And we get to Livy uh, and, and she says, I'm feeling Frankie. I'm feeling Frankie. She created a new emotion that day. And maybe some of y'all can relate to this. I know I certainly can once she explained it. But she says, I'm feeling Frankie. And, and sometimes, I mean, if y'all know her, like, she just, she'll just say stuff wrong sometimes. I wish we kept a running list of things that she just says. And I'm like, that is like so far of what that word actually is. So I just thought that's what she was doing. So I was like, oh, you're, you're, you mean you're cranky. The word is cranky. And she's like, no, Dad. No, I'm, I'm not cranky. I'm frustrated and I'm cranky. So I'm Frankie. I was like, okay, yes, we affirm that in you. I see that now. Yes, absolutely. But you know what? Sometimes we can get a little Frankie, right? Sometimes we can be frustrated and cranky at the same time. So we're Frankie. You're welcome to, to use that as your emotion if you need to sometimes. So anyways, they, they said that, and, and we had a good laugh about it. And we were like, okay, yes, you're, you're Frankie, but but you shouldn't be. All right, let's try to get in a better mood. Uh, well, a couple days later, um, I'm doing breakfast with the kids. And, and I just, I'm first of all, I'm not a morning person anyways. Like uh, Kendra will tell you, I need a good hour or two before I'm a fully functioning adult in the morning. Like, don't talk to me first thing in the morning, because you'll be like, he's the meanest person in the world, um, so just know that I'm not a morning person, so I just, that day especially, I just woke up on the wrong side of the bed, I was in a bad mood, I'm making breakfast, and you know, our kids, they're just being kids, but I'm snapping at them, I'm not being patient, and all of a sudden, Livy is like, dad, you're being Frankie right now, and of course, I responded in a, in a gracious way. And I was like, no, I'm not. You're being Frankie. Don't tell me that. No, I'm not. I'm, I'm in the best mood ever. Can't you tell I am great today? And they're just like, yeah, sure, dad, whatever you say. And then Kendra comes in the kitchen. And they're like, just throwing me under the bus left and right. And they're like, dad's in a bad mood. Dad's being Frankie. And I'm like, no, I'm not. Leave me alone. I'm fine. And they're just giving me a hard time. And Kendra's like, immediately recognized, like, yep you're Frankie right now. You're being in a bad mood, and you need to deal with that. Get, get it together and get in a better mood. Now, you know, none of us enjoy that process, right? Like, none of us enjoy our sins being pointed out. But why were they doing that? Is it because they wanted to punish me, make me feel bad? No. They wanted dad to be in a good mood. They wanted to, to snap dad out of, his, out of his bad attitude and his bad behavior, and they were calling me out on my sin, now, how often do we respond to those moments with pride and defensiveness, right? Like, I don't know about you, but that, that, that can be me sometimes. None of us enjoy being called out on our sin, but it's for our good, right? It's for our good. When we have people that know us deeply and can call us on our blind spots, can call us out when we start to stray away from Jesus, we might not like it in that moment. We might not handle that great the first time around, but it's for our good, The church discipline process is the same way. It's for our good. It's to restore the sinner back to Jesus. So that's the first reason why. Second reason, we'll start to pick up the pace here. Uh, Second reason why we practice church discipline is to protect the church, protect the church. Look at verses six through eight. "'Your boasting is not good. "'Do you not know that a little leaven "'leavens the whole lump? "'Cleanse out the old leaven, "'that you may be a new lump, "'as you really are unleavened. "'For Christ, our Passover lamb, "'has been sacrificed.'" Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. All right, so what's going on here? Paul's talking about bread and festivals and leaven. What's happening? Well, remember, he starts out in verse 2, and he calls them on their arrogance. And in verse 6 here, he calls them on their pride again. What you see throughout 1 Corinthians is one of the themes is the Corinthians think they're awesome Christians. Like they think they are super spiritual, that they got their act together. And just a quick reading of 1 Corinthians, you're like, man, that's not, there there couldn't be anything further from the truth than that right there. But they really believed they were super spiritual. So here's Paul going, y'all are boasting about your spirituality? Y'all think you're really awesome? Like you're, you're prideful about that? And yet here's this guy in your church committing a wicked, evil sin that even the world looks down on. How, how are you going to be prideful about that? Why, why are you boasting about that? Here's what you should do. Deal with the sin. So he's trying, to, he's trying to wake them up to the sin. So that their pride about their own spirituality has blinded them to a serious issue in their own congregation. And Paul's saying, look, if you don't, if you don't deal with this, man, it's going to spread. It's going to spread and it's going to infect the entire congregation. And that's where the illustration of the leaven comes in. Uh, So, for this this day and age, uh, especially in the writings of uh, the Old Testament, the rabbis of this time, uh, even the New Testament authors, when they talk of leaven, it's an illustration for sin. It's an illustration for sin. Uh, so leaven, uh, for the, this day and age, when they, when they talk about that, it's, it's something that they, they would take, and when they were making bread, they would make a new batch of dough for the bread, and they would take a little piece of that, and they would set it aside to use. It would you know kind of ferment and get yeasty, and they would use that in the next batch to make it rise and have yeast. So that's, that's what was going on. But sometimes, if you let that little leaven, even though it wasn't much, if you let that mold uh, and kind of get spoiled, and then you put that into a fresh batch of dough. Again, it doesn't matter how small or tiny that old leaven was. It's going to spread throughout that entire new dough, and it's going to infect everything, and your dough is going to be worthless, and you're going have to toss it all away. So that's what Paul's talking about here. He's saying, look, even even the sin from this one person, I know it's just one person, but if you don't deal with that sin from that one person, it's going to spread throughout the congregation. It's going to spread, and it's going to infect the entire congregation. See, by letting serious sin remain in the congregation, the Corinthians are not living as the unleavened people, free from sin. That's the illustration there. Free from sin that we are called to be. See, they, they are instead to live the life that Jesus has called them to. That's what he means by celebrate the festival. That's, a, that's just Paul's way of referring to the Christian life. Live the Christian life of sincerity, or purity is another word for that, and truth. You're supposed to be pure and follow the truth of Jesus. That's how you're supposed to live. Get rid of the sin, deal with the sin so that it doesn't spread, so that it doesn't infect the entire congregation. And see what this tells us is sin, my sin, is never just a me problem. Your sin is never just a you problem. When we're a part of the church, when we're a part of the body, my sin is not just my sin. It infects everybody. It can spread to everybody. See, again, our our version of Christianity here in America, especially, is is incredibly individualized. You know, it's all about about me and my personal relationship with Jesus. But that's not what we see throughout Scripture. No, Christianity, according to Scripture, is, is communal, it's all of us together. It's not just me on an island living my own life with my own ways and only dealing with my stuff and and only concerned about me. No, no, we're we're part of the body. We're part of the body. We're we're part of the church. So the gospel is more than just me. It's about us. My sin goes beyond just me. It can affect other people around me. That's why we have to deal with it. Sin has to be dealt with because it can threaten the church. So why do we practice church discipline? We restored the sinner. It protects the church. And the third thing here is it preserves a good witness to the world. Look how Paul ends 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He says this, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name Brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So another reason, third reason why we practice church discipline is to preserve a good witness to the rest of the world. See, in these verses, Paul is making sure that the Corinthians are focused on where they should focus, to purge the sin from the church, not from the world. Purge the sin from the church, not from the world. See, Paul makes it clear that we as Christians are not to remove ourselves from the world right? Jesus even says this, to to be in the world, but not of the world. Don't be like the world. Live different than the world. But you can't just, you know, wall yourself off and put yourself in this Christian bubble and only deal with Christians, only be around Christians, only talk to Christians, only watch Christian TV shows, only shop at Christian stores. You'd quickly run out of options. Hobby Lobby only has so much. But anyways, uh, we're not supposed to put ourselves in this Christian bubble. We can't. That's not what we're supposed to do. We're to be a witness to the rest of the world. We're to share Jesus with the rest of the world. We're to live in a way that, that, that honors Jesus and calls others to Jesus. That's what we're supposed to do. So Paul says, look, we can be so concerned about look how wicked the world is. Look how messed up the world is. Look how sinful the world is. Yes, it's the world. They're supposed to be like that. So Paul's saying, look, Jesus will deal with those people. All right, you leave that up to the Lord. Your job is to love them and call them to Jesus, all right? But let's talk about your own tribe. Well, let's talk about those in the church. These are the people who you're supposed to hold accountable. So we're, we're to hold one another accountable to the way we live. Too often we get our focus where it shouldn't be. And we, we miss the sin amongst ourselves. We miss our own sin because we're so focused on the sin of other people. So he says, look, don't, don't judge the outsiders. That's not what we're worried about. We're, we're focusing on you right now. So he makes it clear that we are to hold professing Christians to the standard that Jesus calls us to. All right? See, when we allow unrepentant sinners to claim the name of Jesus, we dishonor Christ and we damage our witness to the rest of the world. When we call something Christian that, that is clearly not Christian, we become hypocrites. We lose any sort of trust that we've built up. Our word no longer means nothing, right? It doesn't mean anything. It was like, well, you're claiming Jesus. Well, so you're saying this is good too, and it's clearly not. Like, we've got to be careful with that. We've got to be careful what we label as holy and God-honoring and Christian. And we need to hold those of us, all of us together, and it's the beauty of the church and sometimes the difficult part of the church, we're to hold one another that profess faith in Jesus to the standard that Jesus has called us to. That's what Paul says. Look, look at who calls themselves a brother. Look who calls themselves a sister. Look at who calls themselves a follower of Jesus. This is who we're supposed to hold accountable. This is who we're supposed to hold to God's standards and God's ways. So church discipline is practiced to restore the sinner, to to protect the church, and to preserve a good witness to the rest of the world. All right, so let's, let's deal with our third question, how? How are we supposed to practice church discipline? How do we do this? Well, as we said earlier, it's a process, all right? It's a process. Sometimes it can be a long process. Uh, sometimes it can be a quick one, like we see in 1 Corinthians 5. And look, at, just, just to be clear, that 1 Corinthians 5 is not, not a typical moment in the life of the church. I mean, how, how often are we dealing with a sin like this that's described in 1 Corinthians 5? All right, so it's, so it's not typical. That, that needed uh, quick action. But typically, it's a longer process that, that involves the church at various levels, individually, smaller groups, pastors, elders, and at times, when it gets to that point, the entire congregation. Uh, And thankfully, again, the Bible speaks to this. Jesus himself speaks to this. So let's flip over to Matthew 18. Uh, So we've dealt with 1 Corinthians 5. Now let's go hang out in Matthew 18 for the rest of our time here. Uh, Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, Jesus lays out a four-step process for how to practice church discipline. All right, so let me read this, and then we'll spend some time truly i say to you whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven again i say to you if again i say to you if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask it will be done for them by my father in heaven for where two or three are gathered in my name there i am among them all right so what's the four step process here well step 1 he says when, when somebody sins against you when somebody sins against you, when somebody, when somebody harms you in some way, does something that, that wounds you in some way, what are you supposed to do? Well, you're supposed to go and talk to them. You're supposed to go and talk it over with them. So when somebody sins against me, I, I go to work it out with them. I, I go to talk with them. I, I, I go in a, in a spirit of, of love and gentleness, uh, asking questions, not making accusations. I, I go uh, to, uh, to 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 give give grace and and to give uh, benefit of the doubt. Like this is this is how we're to deal with one another, right? Like we, we don't come just lobbing bombs and lobbing accusations. Uh, we don't come with revenge in in mind. And this is where we really gotta gotta work on ourselves because hurt people hurt people. All right, that's how it plays out. Hurt people hurt people. So we got to be careful with that. As Christians, that's not what we're supposed to do. So we don't come with accusations. We come giving benefit, benefit of doubt, giving grace. We come with questions. Like that's what Jesus says to do. We come to that other person in hopes of working it out. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, we're not always great at that. We're not always great at that. What we can be really good at is tattling on each other. We can be really good at tattling on each other. Not about your kids, but my kids are pros at tattling on each other. I mean, if there was like an Olympic sport of tattling, they would win gold medal. Non, like it's, it's nonstop in my house. And that's why, like, you know, sometimes Zayden and Livy, again, they're, they're my two older ones. We have a baby, and, and she's not tattling on anybody right now. She's awesome. Uh, but the older two, if, if they're doing something that the other person's not supposed to, man, I, we will find out immediately. There is no loyalty between those two. There is no, like, brother and sister got to watch out for each other. No, they, they dime each other out, rat each other out the second something happens. So even if they're, like, on the other side of the house playing, I don't usually have to worry too much because I know if one of them does anything that the other one thinks they should get in trouble for, they're gonna come running to find mom and dad and go, Zane did this, Livy did this, and they're just gonna tattle on each other, nonstop. They tattle, even yesterday, they were tattling on each other, nonstop. I think at dinner, I even said, the next person that tattles gets in trouble. Not the person who did whatever was wrong, they'll be fine. The person who tattles on the other one, you weren't in trouble, because I'm, I'm, I'm done with it. I'm done with y'all tattling on each other. Now, they're five and six, so that, that, you know, that's to be expected. But the problem is when adults start to tattle on each other, all right? And how do we tattle? We tattle on things uh, or through things like gossip like gossip, right? If somebody hurts us in some way, if somebody does something that we don't like, well, we don't go to that person. No, we go to somebody else and like, you won't believe what they did. You won't believe what they said. Or we'll, you know, we'll, we'll Christianize it and we'll like, we'll get a group of guys. You know, we should pray for that person because here's what they did. So they, they need prayer, clearly. I'm that, you're not really praying. You're just trying to gossip about that person, all right? Let's be honest. Let's be real. So, so we, <laughs> we tattle through gossip, or we'll tattle through passive-aggressive comments made to one another, or, or we'll get our internet muscles on and we'll start typing away on social media, and we'll put out this really passive-aggressive comment that here's what we do. What we want is that person who hurt us to either hear those comments or see those comments while they're scrolling and go, you know what? They're, they're talking about me. Oh, man, that, I clearly hurt them in some way that they're talking about me. Like, we want that to happen. But then when that person comes, they're like, hey, I saw this. Were you, were you talking about me? Oh, no, no no, I wasn't, no, what, no, of course not, no, we're good, we're fine, all's good, you're great, I'm great, we're friends, right, everything's fine, no, I was just, I was just, you know, speaking in generalities, you know, I was just saying that if something like that were to happen, this is how I might feel, like that, right, that's what we, let's, let's be real, guys, we've all done that before, right, we've all done been there. We we do these passive aggressive or maybe just sometimes overtly aggressive comments to strike back at people. We don't want to talk with them. We don't want to work it out. No, we want to strike back and hurt somebody else. Look, just to be real, that's ungodly. That is not biblical. That is not how we're supposed to act. When we do this, all sin does is multiply. We just allow sin to continue to grow and spread when we act like this. That's why Jesus says, look, if somebody has harmed you, if somebody has wronged you in some way, you go to that person. And you go with gentleness, you go with humility, you go in love, you go seeking to restore and rebuild the relationship, but you go and you talk it out. So when somebody hurts us, when somebody hurts us, we, we confront in a godly way. We, we, we seek reconciliation. If I've done the harming, my job is to confess, repent, and apologize for that. Apologize for how I've, I've hurt that person and repented that and not do it anymore. So we've all got a role to play. If you've been hurt, you go and confront in a loving way. If you've done the hurting, you confess and repent. And look, it, so many relationships could be safe. So much sin could be stopped if we just do this to each other. If we just love each other enough to have these awkward conversations. And is it awkward? Yes. It's awkward. It's weird. It's probably never not going to be. But this is how we love one another in the church. This is how we uh, stay in community with one another. Look, we we're going to hurt people. We're sinners, okay? We, we're saved by grace, saints in the eyes of God, holy and perfect in the eyes of God because Jesus' blood covers us, but we still struggle with our sin, right? We still struggle. So there's going to be times, even your leaders, even your elders, even your pastor, at unintentionally maybe, hopefully unintentionally, will cause harm. What will do or say something that, that wounds, and just like we would want for somebody else to, to be given the opportunity to apologize and restore the relationship, do that for one another. Give people the same thing that we would want, that, that, that I would want. So let, let's go to one another and, and, and work towards reconciliation. All right, so that's the first step. Second step is if that doesn't work, if you go to that person and confront them and they're like, I don't care, I'm glad I did it. I'll do it again if I get the chance to. If, they, if they're just unrepentant in their sin, what are you supposed to do? Well, you get a couple more people. Bring some trusted friends into the process. Maybe maybe your small group leader. Maybe maybe get some, some friends. Maybe, maybe it's time to get a, a pastor and an elder involved at that moment. Uh, bring, bring somebody else, one or two other people, into the process to, to back you up and to say, hey, no, no we're seeing this too. Yeah, you, you shouldn't have done that. Shouldn't have done that, all right? So that's step two. Hopefully, they'll be awakened. If three people come to me and you're like, Travis, you're in sin, I hope, I pray that I'll be like, man, if all y'all think so, I must just be blind to it. Yeah, let's talk about it. You know, that. hopefully that would be the case. So again, this is meant to, to wake the sinner up to their severity of their sin. But if that doesn't work, if they're like, hey, all of y'all, I don't care what you say, I'm gonna keep doing this, I don't care, I'm not repenting, I'm not confessing of that, I'm gonna continue in this, well, then the third step is to bring that person before the church. Now, again, this is a process, so maybe it's something where the elders and pastors as the spiritual leaders of the church step into this first and try to confront and talk with that sinner and bring them to repentance. But again, if they, if they reject that, well, this is where the entire congregation comes in. And this is where, again, as, as awkward and weird as this might be, that person is brought before the church, implored to repent of their sin. And if they still refuse... If they still say, you know what? No, I'm choosing my sin over Jesus. Then what's the church to do? Jesus says, treat them as an outsider. Treat them as a tax collector, as a Gentile, as an outsider. What that means is treat them as an unbeliever. Treat them as somebody who, who does not believe in Jesus. And this is exactly what Paul says, right? Deliver them over to Satan. Remove them from church membership. And remember what he said in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 5. Don't even eat with these people. What he's talking about there is communion. First and foremost, he's talking about communion. Don't allow that person to take communion because as we preached on this a couple weeks ago, we said communion is this this symbolic and spiritual moment for us as believers to identify with Jesus. And by saying that, hey, we don't affirm your salvation, you can't be taking communion. So that's what we're doing. We, We treat them as an outsider. We, we deliver them over to Satan, remove them from membership. Uh, we we bar them from participating in the Lord's Supper. Our relationship with that person should change. Like if I'm friends with somebody who's living in unrepentant sin and claiming to be a Christian, if I love them, well, guess what all of my conversations should be centered around with that person? Calling them to repentance. Hey, you want to hang out? Yeah, I'd love to hang out. I'd love to talk about your sin and how you need to repent and come back to Jesus. Like that, our relationships with these people should change. Like that's how big of a deal it is. That's how big of a deal it is. All right, so that's, that, that, that's the, the last and final step is when we bring the entire congregation in. And again, if they continue to walk in unrepentance, this is where we see the drastic measures taken. And again, it's done in love. It's done to restore this person. And I think, you know, how do we treat unbelievers? How do we treat unbelievers? Do we, do we bar this church from having any unbelievers welcomed in here? I, I hope not. Man, that, how, how wicked of a church would that be if it's like, oh, no, you can't come in here if you don't believe in Jesus. Like, no, that's not at all what the church is supposed to be about. And this is why I, I know and I feel very confident that even if somebody is under this level of church discipline, we, I, I want them to keep coming. I think we should still want them here because it just, it's more opportunities for them to hear the gospel, hear the word of God, to be implored by other believers who love them and care about them to come back to Jesus. So this is not a, we kick you out, you're never welcome back, and don't even set foot on our property. And that, that's not what's happening here. That's not what Paul and Jesus are talking about. No, the, the, the church continues to stay involved in this person's life. And this is where we got to be careful, because as the American church, especially in, in the south here, man, there's a church on every corner. If this church kicks me out, well, guess what? I can go to some other church. They don't know what's going on with me. They don't know what church I'm coming from, not unless I tell them. Like, that's the danger, right? And then we continue in our sin, we're never given the opportunity to wake up to our sin and come back to Jesus. So look, my, my prayer is for any of us who might fall under this level of church discipline, don't leave. Don't leave. Stay. Stay, walk through the process, repent, and be restored. All right, so that's how we practice church discipline. And our last question will we'll be done for today. Our last question, when should we do this? When should we practice church discipline. So just a few quick thoughts on this. Church discipline is not brought in for every sin. If that was the case, man, we'd be real busy with doing church discipline 24-7, because again, we all stumble in many ways. So we're going to sin in many ways, and and this is what Martin Luther says, that the Christian life should be continual repentance, that we should just constantly be walking in repentance, uh, because we're constantly walking in our sin at times, you know, and we need to be woken up and repent, come back to Jesus, oh man, I shouldn't have done that, let me come back to Jesus, let me stop living this way, oh man, I messed up in this way, okay, I'm gonna confess, repent that, come back to Jesus. So it's not, it's not for every sin, all right? It is not brought in for every sin, and again, most, most sins that happen in relationships with one another can and should be dealt with with step one, right? When somebody sins against me, I should immediately go to that person. I should immediately go in love and confront them, right? Like this, this, in this way, step one of the church discipline process should be a regular part of being in the church. Because again, we're going to struggle, we're going to sin, we're going to mess up, make mistakes, and cause harm. And again, if we love each other, if we're committed to one each other, Then we will confront each other. All right, so most things can be dealt with in steps one and steps two. So, so when does church discipline happen? When should it happen? In moments of serious and unrepentant sin that threatens the congregation and its witness to the world. Again, it's exactly what we see in 1 Corinthians 5. When does this happen? When there's a big, unrepentant, serious sin that is threatening the church. That's when church discipline steps in. When somebody continues regularly in their unrepentance despite believers coming to them and confronting them. When should church discipline happen? When the church believes it can no longer in good conscience affirm somebody else's salvation. That's when church discipline happens. And look, you know what? It would be awesome, especially as a pastor, make my life so much easier if there was just a page in here that I could point to and go, you know what? Here's our list of sins that happen. Okay, if this person is doing these 15 things, then I know church discipline has to come in. Like, that would be awesome. I'd love that. It would make my life so much easier, right? That's not how it is, though. That's not how it is. Because every situation is different. Every person is different. Every sin is different. Every case is different. And it should be treated as such. So it's case by case, it's sin by sin. And this is why, like, just you know, pray for your pastor, pray for your elders. Like, these are the kind of things that, that we have to process through and think through and seek the Lord's wisdom on. Like, we should all be in prayer for one another. Uh, so it, it needs a lot of prayer and, and just trusting the Lord. So that's when church discipline should happen. So what, what does this mean for us? As we, as we enter time today, uh, how, how do I apply a passage on church discipline to my life today? Well, a few thoughts on that before we end. One, sin is serious, and it needs to be treated as such. Our sin is serious. Too often we, we treat sin like it's not that big of a deal. Oh, It's fine. Nobody knows about it. I'm the only one that knows about it. It's not affecting anybody else. Oh, it's just, you know, it was just one thing. It was just one mistake. It was just, you know, just, uh, we, we belittle our sin. And that's not at all how Scripture sees it. Again, Paul talks about putting our sin to death, killing it. There is this violence that we should attack our sin with. It's a big deal. It's serious. Satan is out there prowling around like a lion, pouncing on us and attacking us every moment he gets. We've got to take our sin seriously. Second thing way we can apply this is we all need accountability. We all need people in our lives, our family, close friends, that know us, that know where we struggle, that know where we're tempted to stray, that know what our blind spots are and that we've invited into our lives at such a level that we love them and trust them enough to say, call me out on that. I might not handle it great at first, but keep pressing, keep pushing, keep calling me out, wake me up to my sin. We all need that kind of accountability in our lives. We all need people that we love and trust, that we've invited into our lives to speak truth when we walk away from Jesus, when we stray from Jesus, even in the slightest moment. They're there going, "Hey, come." Come back to Jesus. Hey, man, what what are you doing there? Why'd you say that? Why'd you do that? Come back to Jesus. That's messed up. You shouldn't be doing that. That's sin. Come back to Jesus. We need accountability. Number three, the way we live matters. The way we live matters. Our sin, again, is not just a me problem. It can damage us. It can damage our church. And it can damage our witness to the rest of the world. Be careful how you are portraying Jesus to the world around you. All right, a, a jokey way to, to put this is, is if you're gonna be a crazy driver that's breaking all of the laws out there, don't put a Christian fish on the back of your car, all right, don't do that, don't do that. All right, leave Jesus out of your bad driving, okay? All right, don't, don't be doing that. First of all, you should obey the laws, all right? So just let me say that as your pastor, obey the laws. But if you're not, if you're gonna choose to not, don't bring Jesus into that mess, all right? But we need to be careful how we portray Jesus to the world around us. Uh, number four, Repentance and restoration are always options. Always options. I want you to hear this. There is no sin that we could ever commit that the blood of Jesus cannot cover. And all he calls us to is to confess and repent of that sin. To say, I don't, I don't want any more of that sin. I don't want any more of that lifestyle. Jesus, I want to come back to you. Jesus is always there with open arms welcoming us back. Repentance and restoration are always options. Jesus does not abandon us. Even in our darkest moments, even in the most serious sins that we could ever commit, Jesus does not leave us or forsake us. He is always right there waiting for us to come back to him, wanting us to come back to him, pursuing us to come back to him. So come back. Come back, this is you. If you're walking in some sin right now and the Lord's saying, hey, it's time to wake up, wake up, come back to Jesus. He's not here to shame you, belittle you, put you down in any way. No, he is is here to welcome you back and restore you. And I want you to hear this too. Your church is here for that too. Jesus doesn't abandon us and your church shouldn't abandon you either. That's what we're here to do welcome the sinner back. Welcome the sinner in with open arms. That's what we're called to do. So for those walking in sin, repent, come back to Jesus. For those holding on to hurts, stop letting bitterness and resentment run your life. You might have been sinned against, but, but you holding on to that hurt, you holding on to your bitterness and resentfulness, that's leading you into sin right now don't do that. Jesus has a better way. It's the way of of forgiveness and reconciliation. So go lovingly confront those who have hurt you. And for those who have done the hurting, confess and repent. Come back to Jesus. As we're launching this church, as we're building this church, let's commit to be a church that seeks to live for Jesus in all that we say and do. Let's commit to be a church that, that takes sin seriously in our walks with Jesus seriously. I'm gonna pray for us, uh, and then we're gonna enter into a time of worship, and, and, and what we've been doing uh, every Sunday now for weeks is we're gonna have this moment of communion where when we gather together as the people of God, we wanna have a moment in every single service where we, where we reflect on what Jesus has done for us, we, we prepare our hearts, and we celebrate and we worship our God who has given his life for us. And that's what communion is. So this is a time for believers only. So in a moment, I'm going to pray Johnny and Channinger can come back up and lead us in some more worship. And for those of you that are believers in the room, this is a time for you, to again, to prepare your hearts. Maybe it needs to, you just need to take a moment, repent of some sin. Maybe you've got some relationships that you need to go and repair right now. Even if they're not here, maybe you need to step outside and make a phone call. Jesus says, do that before you come to my tables. So, And as you feel led, as you, as you prepare your heart, we have the tables on, on either side of the room here. We've got the elements there. And as you feel led, as you're ready, you take the elements. You take the bread and the cup that represents Jesus' broken body and shed blood for us on the cross. And then, and then we, we worship and we celebrate our Savior. We celebrate the salvation that he alone provides. We celebrate the forgiveness that he alone provides. And for those of you that may be here that, that don't know Jesus, again, I love that you're here. I want you to keep coming here, that this place is, is welcome to you. We want you here. But this specific time of communion it is not for you. Again, this is a way for us as believers to identify with Jesus. But do want you to know that it, that it can be for you. You know, If you're here and you're feeling broken and worn down, if you're just caught in this, this despair and shame of your sin, I want you to know that Jesus sees that and he loves you. And he loves you so much that he gave his life for you on the cross. He died the death that we deserve. He took on the wrath that we deserve. And he says, look, you, I wanna give you all forgiveness. Forgive your, your past, present, future sins, all forgiven by Jesus. And all he says is come to me in faith. All he says is stop living for yourself, stop trying to save yourself, and put your faith and your trust in me. You put your faith and your trust in Jesus and, and you're welcomed in. You're brought into his family. You're forgiven of all of your sins. And if that's you here today, if you want to do if you have questions about that, please come find me talk to me. Talk to anybody in here. We, we would love to help you with that. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to celebrate with you if you want to put your faith in Jesus. So let me pray for us and, and we're going to step into this moment of communion and worship. Jesus, we thank you for, Lord, your goodness and grace in our lives. Lord, I thank you that, that you're a God that loves us so much that, that even when we sin, even when we stumble and fail, even when we, we, we choose the ways of this world over you, we, we choose things over you, we, we chase our sin above you. Jesus, you love us enough to call us back home. You love us enough to call us back to you. Lord, that there is always the option of turning to you in repentance, of coming back to you, Jesus. I-, I thank you for that. I thank you for your love, Lord. That that makes no sense to me. I don't understand why you love us so much, Lord, and, and yet you do. And you love us so much that you gave your life for us, Jesus. We, we thank you, we praise you for that, Lord. I pray for each of us in here, Lord, as we, as we go throughout our lives and, and walking in sin and stumbling in these ways, Lord, I, I thank you for your discipline. I thank you for uh, your word that disciplines us, your spirit that convicts us of our sin, your church, Lord, that, that calls us back to you, that walks with us through these moments of difficulty, Lord, through these moments of sin and despair and struggle. So Lord, I pray for our church. Pray that you would protect this church. Pray that you would protect it from sin. I pray that, that when we do sin, that we would be woken up to that and we would repent, Lord. And, and as you say at the end of Matthew 18 there, that, that when, we, when we come to you in these moments of dealing with sin, Lord, you are right there with us. Let us lean on you. Let us look to you for all things, Jesus. We thank you. We praise you, Lord. We give you all the glory and honor today. In your name we pray, amen.